we're going through this summer a series of sermons going through the writings of Peter. So First and Second Peter we've been looking at. We've finished First Peter and we started last week on on Second Peter, and Alan brought us the message then. And we're going to finish up Second Peter chapter one today. So if you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, that you can get those out and and turn to Second Peter chapter one is where we'll find ourselves. I'm sure many of you remember the war in Iraq under the dictatorship of Saddam Hussein, but do you remember the media and Foreign Affairs Minister Mohammed Saeed al-Sahaf. He was an interesting character. He was on the, the news quite a lot during that time. He was also had some nicknames. They called him Baghdad Bob or Comical Ali. Um, al-Sahaf was known for his daily press briefings as he covered the war in Iraq. And it was his job um, in 2003 to be able to to give the people of Iraq some encouragement. However, one MSNBC reporter um, called him the mother of all press secretaries. And here's why. In the process of trying to give some encouragement to the people there in Iraq, he would often kind of hedge the truth a little bit. All right, and, and allow them to not really know what was going on. He, he sheltered them from what perceived reality was there. And, and well, let me give you a few of the things that he said. I mean, they were basically blatant, outright lies. Listen to what he said. Today, the tide has turned. We, that's the Iraqis, are destroying them, the American and Allied forces. He said, be assured, Baghdad is safe, secure, and great. There is no presence of American infidels in the city of Baghdad at all. Well, that's as our tanks were going into their, their city. He said they are sick in their minds, and they say they brought 65 tanks into the center of the city. And I say this to you, this is not true. This is a part of their sick mind. He also said their forces are committing suicide by the hundreds. The battle is very fierce, and God made us victorious. They are a superpower of villains. They are a superpower of Al Capones. (laughs) He says they are beginning to commit suicide at the walls of Baghdad, and I encourage them to increase the rate of suicide. Their columns are being killed in the hundreds at the wall of Baghdad, and we have fed them hell and death. And then the media shows the enemies of Saddam Hussein toppling his statue there in the city center, giving to light to those in Baghdad that something really was amiss, and uh, al-Sahif was not telling them the truth. Now, when he was asked where he got his information, he replied this, authentic sources, many authentic sources. And, And he would point out that he was a professional doing his job. Trust me, would I lie to you? I mean, we've heard those words before, haven't we? I mean, it it seems like we we try to convince somebody of something that we're saying, and and, and so we throw those words out there. Just just trust me, I, I wouldn't lie to you, would I? And in the back of their minds, they're going, hmm, I wonder now. 
Well, in our passage of Scripture this morning, we're going to discover that Peter is having to put out proof that he hasn't been lying to them about Jesus. Matter of fact, he takes the stand as an eyewitness to the majesty and the glory and the divinity of Jesus Christ, and he brings into the courtroom a full aspect of prophetic witnesses and apostolic witnesses to testify to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that was upon their hearts as they were writing the Word of God. So, the first thing Peter wants to get us to understand here in the very verses 16 through, through 18 is that Peter is also an eyewitness along with others. And so he lays out this eyewitness testimony. Have you ever lived in a world of make-believe? I mean, as children, we, we play games and we, we create stories and scenarios and we, we have little tea parties and we go on hunting parties. We do all these kinds of things as kids. But it's a world of make-believe. C.S. Lewis, who's a noted scholar and professor of medieval and Renaissance literature in Cambridge University, he once commented on the idea that the gospel, some said, is a myth. And so this was his response. If he, that's the biblical critic, tells me something in gospel is a legend or romance, I want to know how many legends or romances he has read, how well his palate is trained in detecting them. And then he goes on and he says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, myths all of my life. I know what they are like, and I know no one of them is like this. Have you ever been to Disneyland or, or Disney World? And walked amongst the, the world of fantasy land, and there you see Snow White and Cinderella and the dwarves. And, and, and maybe you, you might get a, a, to notice that there is, there's Peter Pan or Pinocchio and all these stories in this fantasy world. But there is no one in history that comes anywhere close to those characters. Rumpelstiltskin, could he actually sleep for so long? Those characters in, Dan in Disney, they don't even live in real places. They make up names, and they're fictitious. Their, their stories often begin with once upon a time, or like the fiction of, of Star Wars, you know, long, long ago in a galaxy far, far away. Because we can't prove it at this point. But the story of Jesus is totally different. It's a story that's based on concrete evidence and facts in history of about events and people and places and dates and all these things. And, and, and so when we think about it, there, there's also a plurality of eyewitnesses who verify for us, not just in the Bible, but outside, extra-biblical sources that we'll talk about as eyewitnesses of who Jesus was. We know that the Lord of the Rings is a fantasy because there's no evidence of actual beings like, like elves or hobbits or orcs or ringwraiths. I've never seen any of them, though some people may look like elves, but we know that those are fantasy. And really there is no place called Middle Earth, and, and I've never found the one ring that rules them all. And so we say that that has to be fantasy. But the gospel message is true. Matter of fact, in the second century, the Roman historian Tacitus, he writes to us 
in the Roman world, specifically that he confirms that Christianity was founded by a man that he calls Christus. He says he was put to death as a criminal by Pontius Pilate, that he was the procreator of Judea and, 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 and in the reign of Tiberius. Now, you don't use names of real people and real places and real dates if you're trying to tell something that is fantasy or fiction or make-believe. But the gospel message is rooted in truth and in history and in a world of reality with real people, real places, real dates, real conflicts, and real miracles. So Peter begins by telling us this in 2 Peter chapter 16, beginning, chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. He said, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. Did you catch that? But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. Peter's testimony here is this, he uses that word we, he's signifying that he wasn't alone in this. And when we read the accounts of the Gospels, we know that it was Peter and James and John that were with Jesus on that holy mountain when something marvelous took place. And so he says, we didn't just cleverly devise these plans and make up stories about this. This is the reality. This is not a myth. So a myth or a tale is, is a story that is manufactured to express one's own desire without being truly honest in the reality. And so since it is created by man in our mind, in our imagination, it really has no redemptive power to it. So if the story about Jesus really is just a myth, then we're all still lost in our sins. And there really is no hope for us. But if it's true, then it's life-changing. So the Greek and the Roman world, they abounded with stories and myths and, and about their gods and how they would come down to earth and they would interact with mankind. They would, they would use them and abuse them for their own personal pleasure and enjoyment and entertainment. Perhaps Peter is using this word myth in a way to attack the Gnostic teachings that were taking place at that time in the church. So he uses this word mythos to refer to their speculations about, the Gnostics would speak about aeons and, and, and uh, uh, emanations. They were kind of similar to what angels were, but they came from a different place. They came from the eternal abyss, the source of all spiritual existence, and these aeons were named mind, wisdom, power, and truth. So the Gnostics, in sharp contrast to Christianity, they certainly had devised some cleverly creative tales and stories and myths. So Paul the Apostle writes a letter to another young minister by the name of Timothy. 
And in his letter to him in 1 Timothy chapter 1, Paul wants to encourage him to really be paying attention to things. And so he writes these words in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. He says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. And Paul goes on and he says, the aim of our charge is love. And that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Now, he says, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So, the apostles, instead of fabricating these stories and these fables, they were trying to make known the real, historical, factual realities about Jesus. And their doctrine held that, that they held forth Christ, that He came into the flesh, that He dwelt among us, He lived here, and He, he understood what it was like to be human. But it was all because of God's purpose that He would then redeem mankind because of their sin. And this Jesus that they speak of is the only one who has the capability and the authority to save us from our sin, to offer up Himself in our place for the condemnation that we deserve. And it's only through Jesus that we can receive this. And so those who reject Jesus will separate themselves eternally from God and those who put their faith in Him. Now, this self-same Jesus that is being preached by the apostles as being both Lord and Christ, they say is coming again. And so Peter's going to want them to be prepared for the return of Jesus the second time. And it's not going to be like it was the first time. And so they need to be on their guard for things. So the time, this time, with power and majesty, he's going to come back and defeat all the forces that are arrayed against his kingdom and against him. When he returns, he will introduce for us a new heaven and a new earth. He will recreate things in a beautiful fashion rather than the way we have destroyed things. And he's going to lead us into an everlasting state of blessing and joy. And we'll finally have perfection. But what guarantees do we have that this is true? So Peter is going to propose for us that we can know that this is true because there were eyewitnesses that Jesus was glorified on this mountain that has become holy because of His presence there. And that they saw the glory of Jesus just as it would have been the glory that He would have had in heaven because now all of a sudden something has changed in, in, in His physical characteristics as well. He uses a word, epoptai, and it means eyewitness. But this is the only time it's used in the New Testament. And it's a different word. We just translate it eyewitness. But let me kind of give you some of the background of this word. It was customary for commentators to note that this eyewitness is a technical term that is used in, mystery, in, in the mystery religions around Rome. And it designated those people who were initiated into a higher 
position in the faith that they had. All right, so in these mystery religions, they put on drama, sort of like passion plays, that would um, act out the life of the God in which they were worshiping. Now, in order to be able to go to those plays, you had to go through a series of instructions and schooling and education and learning, and, and you'd have to be tested to see on your knowledge on these things before you'd be permitted to go and watch the play. And once you had proven yourself to be a great student of that, then you would personally be invited to go and experience union with the God. <coughs> Now, when they reached this state of being allowed to attend the actual drama, he was what they called an initiate, or, as we have translated, eyewitness. Right? So he was prepared to and privileged to be an eyewitness of the experiences of their God through this dramatic performance. Now, Peter is using the false teacher's own words against them when he puts this in here. Because this word is often used in the Gnostics' teachings and their writings. And, and so the thrust of Peter's argument here, he suggests, is that the false teachers were outside the initiates, such as Peter, James, and John. You guys did not get yourselves elevated to a position where you could go on that mountain and see Jesus in all His glory. But we did. Because we spent the three years studying from Him and learning from Him and understanding all these details that He allowed us then to experience something that you Gnostics have not been able to see. Now Peter saw with his own eyes this majesty and glory of Jesus on the mount, let alone the miraculous thing that Jesus did while He was here and in His ministry, such as healing you know, the lame, giving sight to the blind, raising the dead, feeding a multitude of people, and, and, and casting out demons, and walking on the water, and causing a storm to stop. I mean, all these significant things, those are nothing, Peter says, clearly compared to that moment on the mountain when they saw Jesus and Elijah and Moses, and they heard the voice from heaven speak out to them that this is my son. So of all these wonderful, glorious events, Peter chooses to bring into evidence this transfiguration of Jesus where he openly displayed his glory as a certain proof for Peter, James, and John to know that he really is the Son of God. So 2 Peter 1.17 says, For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Peter writes in summary what he saw on that, that mountain of transfiguration. And they saw Jesus. So let's look there at Matthew chapter 17, verse 2. Matthew writes, And He was transfigured before them, and His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as bright, as white as light. Now there's another description. You have to go back into Exodus, and you see that when Moses was up on the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments, and he came down from that mountain, he was emanating light. And the Hebrew word, the closest thing to that light that was shining forth off of Moses was, was our word lightning. It was as if he himself was generating this bright brilliance of lightning but it was the glory of God that had just fallen upon him. And Exodus tells us it was the glory of God under his feet because 
Not even Moses could stand in the very presence of God and see his face. So, Peter, James, and John, these three men, they saw more clearly than anyone else the special, amazing glory of God. And Peter is an eyewitness to it. This amazing glory was almost, almost blinding them. It, it, as it emanated from Jesus, it changes them and it is eternally etched upon their minds. Have you ever looked at a light for a while? Don't do it. These are bright. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you close your eyes and you see it right there. I imagine that's exactly what it was. Every time Peter, James, or John would close their eyes, all of a sudden, before their very darkness, there is that bright and brilliance of Jesus. And Peter says, we saw it with our own eyes. He initiated us enough that we could see all of this unfold before us so we knew who he truly was. I mean, it was an amazing scene where Elijah and Moses came to help prepare Jesus for his own exodus out of this world. And they were there to comfort him and to encourage him. And we really don't know what all the language and the, and the discussion that took place, but it was so significant. And it, and it helped Jesus as he was getting ready to walk into Jerusalem for that final time and head to Calvary to give his life on that cross for you and me. Warren Worsby said it this way. He said, The transfiguration was proof that suffering leads to glory when we are in the will of God. The transformation was proof that suffering leads to glory when we are in the will of God. Because we know that Jesus remained within the will of God. And he prepared himself for the suffering that ultimately was to our benefit. If witnessing this glorification of Jesus on the mountain wasn't enough, and the Father's voice came from that glory, that majestic glory, and he said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now in 2 Peter 1.18, Peter says, we ourselves heard this very voice that was born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We heard it. Not only did we see it, but now we heard it. And it's the same thing that was uttered from the heavens when Jesus was baptized there in the Jordan River with John. Confirmation who he is, yes, we know. Peter not only saw Christ's glory, but he heard the voice of the Father. And witnesses are people who tell accurately what they have seen and what they have heard. And Peter was a faithful witness. And now Jesus is the Son of God. He is. How do we know that? Well, Peter's saying the Father himself said it. That voice from heaven proclaimed him to be, and we were with him. And that, that statement is an emphatic statement. He says, that's exactly how I know he is the Son of God. Because I was there with him, and I heard that voice, and I heard what God the Father said, and so it has to be true. I mean, it's, an, it's this event that he's never going to forget. And it changes Peter from here on out. I mean, as eyewitnesses and, and earwitnesses as well, the, the apostles were permitted to see a glimpse of heaven where Jesus in his full glory with authority and power 
displayed right before their very eyes. But Peter doesn't stop there. Now, beginning in verse 19 through the end of that chapter, he's going to lay forth some other irrefutable prophetic word of God proofs. That's basically how I'll put it. So let's look at verse 19. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You see, how powerful a statement is that? And we have this prophetic word more fully confirmed. More fully confirmed than what? Than his own ability as an eyewitness and as an earwitness to say the truth of what he saw. He says the prophetic words of the Old Testament, they're even more secure than me telling you what I saw with my own two eyes. There's power in the Old Testament because it leads us to understand who Jesus is. A lot of times in the church, we use the New Testament to prove Jesus who He is. They didn't have the New Testament at that time. They're writing it. So what did they use to prove that Jesus was the Messiah, that He was the Son of God? The Old Testament. The prophets. And Jesus told them, Prophecies are fulfilled in your hearing. And it made the people mad because they knew exactly what he meant by that, that he was the Messiah, the Son of God, and surely somebody here in Nazareth could not be the Messiah. So in the preceding verses, Peter focuses on hearing the words spoken by God the Father directly from heaven. But now he turns his attention to the written word of God. I mean, the written Word of God is declared, he says, more reliable than even God's thundering voice from heaven that they heard. That's interesting, isn't it? I would think that hearing the voice of God from heaven would be the most reliable thing. Peter says, no, we got something even better than that. It is this written Word that has been inspired by the Holy Spirit through the men through all ages, and it is His Word that is there to give you life and to empower you. You see, it's not that it is more of God's Word, but it is more certain. It is fully confirmed. As vivid and valuable as Peter's personal experience with Jesus was, he says you need to pick up the Scriptures. Because they are powerful. I can't share with you the experience I had because you can't go back and feel it and see it and smell it and, and taste everything that's in the air at that moment. But you can pick up the Word of God and it's going to change your life. That's what Peter's saying. See, the prophecies are more reliable than fables that were referred to in verse 16. Peter's saying the Scripture is a better than anything that the Gnostics have to offer. Read the Bible. 
And as far as Peter's readers are concerned, Old Testament prophecy would be a better source of information after Christ's first coming because they can see how he fulfilled those things that were prophetic about him. And after all, they cannot duplicate his experience, but we can still search the Scriptures to find the truth. Romans chapter 16, verse 25 and 26, Paul writes to the church and he says this, Now to him, that's Jesus, who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for, age, for long ages, but has now been disclosed and is through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. So Peter and Paul are, are using similar discussion here on the power and the authenticity and the strength and the activity of the Word of God itself, the Holy Scriptures. So we need to learn to turn to them to find out more about Jesus. And then that brings us into obedience in our faith. A man who was living on Long Island, he, he bought a high-quality barometer. When it was delivered to his home, he looked at it, and it looked like it was broken. Something was wrong because the, the, the needle kept saying, pointing towards hurricane. And so the next day, so finally he sat down, and he, and he wrote this seething letter out to the the store in which he bought it, that, that this thing is broken because all it does is point to hurricane. And so he then put that letter in the mail and headed out, went to work, and you know what happened, don't you? Hurricane. <laughs> hurricane came, and, and it hit his house, and it destroyed things. And that evening when the man returned to Long Island, he discovered that his barometer was missing. But so was the house. We need to pay attention to things that are true and not set them aside as fable and fake. We need to take heed and to pay attention to what God's Word has to say, for it is never wrong. It's always true. As a lamp shining in the dark place, we're told, now see, these ancient lamps, they gave out the same light as we have a candle today. Really not much uh, because it's just a little flame that maybe came from some oil out of a little spot on, the, on a lamp. But it was there to, to break the darkness out and people could begin to see things. And it's amazing how much one little flame can do. In a world of darkness, a little light shines bright. So Peter reminds us that as long as we sojourn in this world, we have need of the prophecies of the Old Testament to help us as a guiding light for our walk of faith. And were it to be extinguished, we would wander miserably, blindly in the darkness of our world. Peter's trying to express that the whole course of our lives ought to be guided by the Word of God, the lamp unto our feet and the light unto our path. God's Word will continually shine forth, and so he says there in verse 19, until the day dawns and the morning star rises. The Word of God is the lamp and it is the light that we need to use in life. Now apparently two things are talked about in the words day dawns and morning star rises. It's a word picture. It's the day dawns. It's actually 
describing that half hour before sunrise. Before you actually see the sun, what do you see? You see the, just the beginning of light coming over the horizon. And then eventually, there's the sun. But before you see the sun, you see the, the brilliance of it as it's changing the darkness into light. And so that's what he's talking about. It's just this day dawning. And, the, and that glow in the sky is a better light than what you simply had in the dark. It's most likely Peter's way of poetically and figuratively describing a new and a deeper knowledge of faith and an understanding about who the Messiah really is. When it starts to, what they say, dawn on you, you begin to see the light. So we need to study the Old Testament prophecies really until we see the light that is written within there. And we need to arrive at a full conviction and a strong faith that the prophecies predicted all these things about Jesus as the Messiah, that He would be Emmanuel, God with us, God in the flesh. Now, as the morning star rises, the word used here is phosphorus. Well, we know what phosphorus is, don't we? Well, that word phosphorus is not used anywhere else in the New Testament either. Here it is. And it is this word that is used, he's using to describe Jesus. Now, there's another word that is used as well for, for light, and it's astron. And it's used about the Messiah in Numbers chapter 24, verse 7, when it says, A star shall come out of Jacob. But phosphorus literally means light bringer. what it is. It's a light bringer. And it points not only to Jesus revealing himself and his way in the heart of the man who pays attention to the word, but it also to his return when he will shine in his full glory. and He will banish darkness and doubt. Look what Ephesians 5 says. Paul writes to the church there beginning in verse 13 and 14. He says, but when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Revelation twenty-two sixteen. these are the words of Jesus. Listen to what he says. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. What? The bright morning star. So who is Peter talking about? Well, Jesus says, it's me. I am the bright morning star. And until that day that we have the Scripture as a light and the Holy Spirit illuminates Scripture for us to guide us as we seek truth and love. So how did we get God's Word in the first place? And Peter's going to address that for us now. So we go back to first, or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. And he says, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And that's important. It's important. He, he, he says, first of all, 
if there's one thing I want you to get, let's start with this first thing, okay? This is what he says. First of all, pay attention now, fellas. This is what I'm telling you. First of all, where do we get our Scripture? We ought to know that Scripture did not originate in the mind of man. They didn't create it like a myth or like a fable or like a story. No scripture originated, he said, from the prophet's own interpretation or his own understanding of things. But the Bible was given to us by God through the Holy Spirit. So I think there are two lessons are understood here concerning this interpretation of Scripture. First, it's the Holy Spirit that must guide individuals into interpreting the times in the Bible. But He is the author, and He is the one who illuminates things for us so that we can see better what God's will is, His good, perfect, and pleasing will is. Second is that Scripture must be interpreted, interpreted in the light of other Scripture. I mean, Scripture should not be divorced from other Scriptures or, or from its context. And so isolated texts, we can take them totally out of context and use them for our own benefit. A simple one, it's okay for me to beat my wife. And you say, what? That goes against what I would think Christianity would be like. But if I take Scripture by itself and out of context, I can make the case for that. Because Paul says that I beat and buffet my body daily. And then he tells us to love your wife as your own body. Ooh. But that he doesn't mean you should do that to your wives. We've got to look at Scripture as Scripture as a whole. We don't take it out of context. We use it in the fullness of it because it means so much more when we read the whole of it. But you and I can take little bits and pieces and we can twist it all we want. And the Gnostics people who had invaded the church were doing just that. They were taking bits and pieces and trying to make their own interpretations. And the Bible's prophetic record is truly accurate. Unlike that little Puxatoni Phil on February 2nd when he makes the predictions about the weather and winter, one, one weathercaster once said, I'm 90% correct 10% of the time. The Bible is 100% correct 100% of the time. Verse 21 affirms that God is the source of all Scripture. I mean, the greatest assertion here is that the writers of Scripture, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or some translations say, born along. They were picked up and moved, and, and he was the one guiding them. So they wrote. And the Bible is just not mere thoughts of the mind of men. I mean, however, the events that took place in the lives of those men, they were given freedom to write. I mean, they, they, their own vision and dreams came into their thoughts, and even the words were written in language, their own languages that they understood. But the power which turned the sprockets and the cogs of their mind came directly from God through the Holy Spirit. The moving of the Holy Spirit was the power that caused the words of God to be recorded on the pages so that the Word of God would bring life and light. The writer's personalities, they weren't erased. There's a term called verbal plenary inspiration. And what that means is that holy men were so much under the control of the Holy Spirit that they were safeguarded from making mistakes. 
So they could write it in their own language, with their own phraseology and their own idiosyncrasies of thought and language, but yet what actually was put together did not lose its authenticity as being the Word of God. Because as they're being carried along by the Spirit, what they wrote was Him using them in their lives and in their understanding of things to write so nothing was inaccurate that went to paper. So Peter is saying these men were uniquely inspired, unlike anybody else in history, to write. And I think he's also insinuating, as he's writing this letter to them, that it as well is being inspired by the Spirit of God. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is God-breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? He then goes on to say, So the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for all good work. But you catch this? All Scripture is inspired. It is breathed out by God. The story told about a young boy giving his grandmother a Bible for Christmas. He wanted to write something really special on a flyleaf in there, but he didn't know what to say. And he remembered that he had seen an inscription in one of his dad's books. So he, he wrote this down this to, to let her know that he, he really cared about her. And so Christmas morning came, and the grandmother opened her gift, and she was not only pleased to receive the Bible, but she was kind of amused at what he had written. So he inscribed it this way, to Grandma, with compliments from the author. Now, that is power. I mean, even though the boy was unaware of it, I think he suggested a very unique fact of Bible. It came to us from its author. And God, it has proven itself by transforming the lives of people who read it, even today. It is so unique. Unlike any other book out there, it has power because it is living and active. It's not dead words on a page. And within its framework has the ability to work out the redemptiveness in our lives if we would read it and obey it. Knowing who wrote the book often determines whether we're going to pick it up and read it, doesn't it? We've got our favorite authors. We have somebody we have no idea who they are, so we might be kind of cautious about reading it. But if we know who it is that has written the book, then we are going to read it. And the Bible, with its divine origin, not only ought to be read, but it demands our respect it demands our trust, our obedience to it. I mean, it comes with us literally with compliments from the author. So what makes me a Christian is believing and accepting that Jesus is Christ. And the central figures of that book, the historicity of it all, the factuality of it all. He even says, my word is truth. We've got to believe it. 
This book bears testimony that Jesus was born of a virgin. He lived a perfect life, that he worked miracles. He died on a cross for man's sins, and he bodily rose from the grave, and he ascended into heaven after spending 40 more days on earth talking with his disciples. Eyewitnesses of over 500 at one time saw him. I believe that it is God's holy word. It's not a fable of of deliberately crafted events to try and deceive men and trick them into believing something that is false. It's not filled with fabrications and fraud and lies. But it is directly inspired by the Holy Spirit. What do you believe? I pray you believe that it is true. I pray that you believe that it is life-changing. Because it is. And within these pages, there is a calling. And it's his call to you to put your faith and your trust in him. And he'll take care of things. If you've never given your life to Christ, if you've never fully believed, man, sit down with me. I want to talk. One of the greatest women that I know by faith passed this week, my mother. I know where she is today. I believe she's sitting on the lap of God our Father there in the throne room just for a thousand years or so, and then she'll give us a turn. Because eternity has no time limits. But she believed this. I put my faith in it. I pray you do as well. Because your life will never be the same. Let's stand together.